Well, good morning. My name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors here at Deer Creek Church and also a church plant resident. Uh, I am not Brett Weston, who you saw earlier in the video. Uh, my hope is to plant a church in the fall of 2021, whereas uh, Brett is going out this upcoming fall in the fall of 2019. Uh, my wife and kids are not here. They were in the first service, but I also have a wife. Her name is Hannah, two kids, Eli and our daughter, McLean. And I wanted to thank you guys for allowing me to come and teach from God's word this morning. And if you have your Bible, open up to Colossians chapter one, verses nine through 14. Colossians chapter one, verses nine through 14. If you don't have a Bible, it's gonna be printed on the screen behind me. So you can follow along there. We will read the passage and then we'll pray that God will teach us. This is Colossians one, nine through 14, God's word. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. And Lord, we need you to teach us now. We pray that you would send us your Holy Spirit that we not only know this intellectually, that you would open it up so that we might know it, but also that you would open up our hearts to receive it and apply it to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I entitled this sermon, What More Do You Need? And I did that intentionally because recently I was at Barnes & Noble's bookstore shopping for Christmas presents. And I don't know if you've noticed in, in any bookstore that there is no sure amount of people who think that they have the key to life, right? That, that they think they know we are missing something in life and they have something to offer this missing key in life. And, you know, they offer many things. One of the things that they offer is, for instance, the positive key. Maybe you've heard about this one, right? That if, if we just think positive thoughts not dwell on things that are negative, then all the things in our life will finally align. They'll finally fall into place and our life will be changed. Or maybe you've heard of the inward key, right? This idea that, hey, if we search inwardly, if we have greater self-knowledge, knowledge about ourselves, then all the, all the things that are wrong in our life will finally fall into place and fall into line. Or there's the diet key, right? No short of diet keys. The diet key, right, is, is this idea of, hey, if we control our diet, if we control what's put into our body, that's going to change our life and, and our life circumstances will change around our diet. Or this is a big one for millennials of which I'm a part, right? The idea of the present key, that if, we don't, if we're not too anxious about the future and fearful about the future, and if we don't dwell on the things of the past, if we just live in the moment, live in the now, then all of the things in our life are going to change for the better, right? And this is tempting to believe, all of these different solutions, all these different keys to life. Everybody's saying something's missing. I have a good friend, his name is Richie Sessions. He uh, was a pastor in Nashville. We just moved here from Nashville, so I was good friends with Richie. 
Richie said his first year of ministry, right as he was laying his head down on a pillow to go to bed at night, he got a call from one of the people in his congregation who told him to rush to the hospital. And he thought that they were giving birth to their first child that they were awaiting. Well, when Richie arrived, he found out that halfway through the birthing process, the baby stopped breathing, heart stopped beating, and they had to deliver a stillborn child. It was in that moment when he was holding this child in his hands that Richie found out, he said, I am powerless to stop this. Whatever is missing, whatever key to life there is, I do not have it. No amount of positive thinking, no amount of inward turning, no amount of dietary changes or living in the now can change this circumstance. Our problem, whatever we are missing, whatever we need has to be much deeper than those things. And and I think about this all the time. My son, Eli, when he was born, he spent the first seven days of his life in intensive care. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking this. I, I remember thinking, if I could pray one thing, if I could ask God one thing that I wanted Eli to know, what would it be? If I never saw him again, what would I tell him? One thing that I could pray for, the one thing that he needs for life, what would I tell him? The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter 2,000 years ago to this church in Colossae, he's, he's never met this church. He's never seen them. He's, he's never interacted with them. He's never talked with them. And in fact, the Apostle Paul says this. These are the last words of this letter. He says, remember my chains. It, it tells us that he's in prison when he's writing this letter. He's going to face his death. He's never met this church. And in fact, you know, scholars think that as Paul was facing his impending death, as he was going to be executed for preaching and teaching the Bible, they think that fearful of his execution and upcoming death, he just started to write profusely and started writing to churches saying, hey, this is what you need to know. Write these things down. Remember these things. This is what's missing. This is what you need. Well, those are the circumstances that Paul's writing in. His life is ending and the Colossian church, their spiritual life has just begun. Paul has said, I just heard of your faith. You are now believers in Jesus. Here's what you need to know, the one thing you need to know. And I want you to think, think with me this morning. How, how would you pray? If you were in this situation, how would you pray? If you had one prayer and you could say something to somebody that you love, what would it be? If it's a child who's 22 years old and wants nothing to do with mom and dad, so they turn their back on you and they walk out and they say they never want to see your face again, what would you pray and what would you tell that son or daughter, that person you love? What is the one thing you want them to know? Or maybe it's a friend contemplating divorce and and you realize that things may never get reconciled, that they may never reconcile what's going on. What's the one thing that you would want them to know before they make that decision? What would you want them to know? Or maybe it's a neighbor who has a cancer diagnosis, somebody you really love and have a relationship with, or maybe it's a spouse battling depression, whatever the case may be. If you had one prayer, what would you say? What is the one thing that you say they would need? Paul, when he begins his prayer in in verse nine, he says, here's the one thing you need. Here's the most important, vital, foremost thing that you need. And he says, it's knowledge. Verse nine, he says this to the church. And so from the day we heard, that's the day that he heard that the Colossians had faith in Jesus. So from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. During the time that Paul was writing this letter, there was this false teaching going around called Gnosticism. And Gnosticisms essentially believed this. They said, Jesus is good. Jesus is important. He's the savior. He's good. But you need something more. You need something more than Jesus. Jesus was a good start, but it's incomplete. You need something in addition to Jesus. You need something more. And these people were everywhere. Gnostics, these teachers, were all throughout the Roman Empire. And we get kind of an insight into what they were teaching later on in Paul's letter. He says this. He's talking about the Gnostics. He's saying to the Colossian church about the Gnostics, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, that's Jesus, not holding fast to Jesus, and from, who, from whom the whole body, that's the church, is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. And he goes on to say this, these false teachers, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So you see what these Gnostics were teaching, right? They were teaching, yeah, Jesus is good, but you need more. What you need is asceticism, right? This idea that if you just starve and fast and you reject your body and you abstain from things in this life like good food at Thanksgiving meal, then that is gonna make you complete. Or they say worship of angels. Jesus is a good start, Jesus is good, but there's this whole other realm of spiritual beings that you can be tapped into. It's the key to your spiritual growth, right? Or this idea of visions. They say, hey, following Jesus, following his followers, teachers, following the Bible, how he's been presented in his word, the very thing that he's given us to know him, that stuff's good, but you can receive a direct revelation from God, one personally tailored to you. And Paul's response to these people is he says, no, no. These things have the appearance of wisdom, but they actually have no value. In other words, these things are counterfeits. My wife, uh, when she was studying abroad in Argentina during her sophomore year of college, she had received some counterfeit money from a vendor that she had interacted with on the street. And when she was driving home late one night, she tried to give this counterfeit money to this, uh, to this uh, taxi driver. And the taxi driver, seeing it, knowing what, a true, uh, knowing what a true dollar bill looked like, he said, no, I can't accept this. Do you have any more money? And fortunately she did. She didn't get thrown into Argentinian jail. So she was able to pay this man. But the problem was, right, that Hannah wasn't familiar with the real thing. She didn't know the texture. She didn't know the feel, the look of the genuine dollar bill. So because of that, she was deceived. And in fact, people who deal with forgeries, people who deal in counterfeits, the way that they identify counterfeits isn't by studying every single counterfeit that pops up. Otherwise, they'd always be behind because the bad guys are always moving at a rate faster than the good guys. Instead, the way that people spot counterfeits is they get so close to the genuine thing that they are able to distinguish what is false about the false thing. So people who study counterfeits, they know the appearance of a dollar bill. They know the texture of a dollar bill. They know what it looks like under light. They know the feel of it in their hands. And that's how they're able to tell whether something is genuine or false and has no value. And Paul is saying all of these teachings 
they say to you, hey, you've started with Jesus and now you need to add something on top in order to get to where you need to be, to be filled to completion, to be made whole. But Paul is saying, no, the way that you truly grow is not to start with Jesus and move to something else, but to start with Jesus and to continue on to be filled with the knowledge of Jesus Christ and spiritual wisdom and understanding. No amount of introspection or being present or positive thinking can give you that. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, what you started with in Jesus needs to bring you to completion. And here's what this means. Here's what this means in in brass tacks, right? Paul writes this later on in another letter to a church, a church that was in Corinth, which is in modern day Greece. He talks about Jesus in this way. He says, Jesus actually is true wisdom. You're searching wisdom outside of Jesus. No, Jesus is true wisdom. In fact, he's wisdom in the flesh. This is 1 Corinthians chapter one, verse 30. He says this, and because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Meaning if you want to be wise, if you want to know true things, if you want to be wise in this world and be complete, the solution is not found out there. It's found in Jesus. Jesus is wisdom incarnate, wisdom in the flesh. And this can sound like really philosophical and abstract, right? But it's actually, Paul, that's not Paul's intention here, right? What Paul is saying is, hey, do you want to know who you are and what your purpose in life is? Then you look to Jesus, Do you want to know who God is, what he's like, what he's done for us? Then you look to Jesus. Do you want to know why the world is the way it is? Look to Jesus and live in a relationship with him and you'll come to this knowledge. Let me give an illustration that will maybe make sense to this. When I played baseball growing up, I tried to catch chipmunks every time that I wasn't playing. So what I would do is I would set up a shoebox and I'd put a stick on the shoebox and tie a string around it. And I'd put a bunch of sunflower seeds underneath the shoebox in hopes that a chipmunk would mosey in and eat it. And I'd pull out the stick and trap the chipmunk, right? But that didn't work. What I had to do was actually attract the chipmunk to come into the box. Just having a pile of uh, sunflower seeds underneath the box wasn't enough. Every three inches, I'd have to put a sunflower seed in order to have the chipmunk come up and he'd nibble a sunflower seed. And before he could get distracted, he'd, oh, he'd see the other one and go and grab the other one and eat it. All the way until finally he came underneath my shoebox. I'd pull the string, I'd trap him. And then I'd put that chipmunk in somebody else's baseball bag so they'd find it after the game, <laughs> right? <laughs> Paul's saying this, you want to get there. You want to get there. You want to be complete in Jesus. You realize, hey, what more do I need in life? And you need to be complete. That's the end goal that you want. Paul is saying, hey, if you want to know and you want to get to that place, you have to look no further than Jesus. There are distractions every single which way. But if you want to know who you are, you need to find it in Jesus. If you want to know who God is, you find it in Jesus. And here's the thing. If you want to know who you are, personality profiles can only go so far. What you need is to live in relationship with Jesus and you will find your purpose in life. Do you want to know why the world is the way it is? Do you want to know why 4.5 million people worldwide are in sex trafficking? Do you want to know why in Colorado in 2017, we had the highest rate of suicides in the state's history? See, by living in relationship with Jesus, you'll begin to see this world is not how God intended it to be. This world is fallen and broken in sin. 
Do you want to know God? Do you want to know who he is, what he's like, why he matters? By living in a relationship with Jesus, you will know the one who was truly God and truly man in one flesh. Jesus, who is wisdom from God, he is wisdom in the flesh. God's wisdom in the flesh. And we see this perfectly at the cross. The cross is the very place where we see God's wisdom displayed. At the cross, right, we see that we are rebels. We are sinners. We are people deserving of the wrath and punishment of God forever, eternally separated from him in hell. But we also see at the cross that Jesus bore the very punishment that we deserve in his place, that he loved us so much. He actually bore the wrath, not of good people, but bad people and rebels. And he took it on himself and absorbed that wrath so that we could be forgiven. So at the cross, we see we are rebels, yes, but we are also beloved children of God, completely forgiven, all at the same time. At the cross, we see who God is. God is a holy, righteous, just God who is angry with our sin and rebellion. My wife just, uh, or my my sister-in-law just had her car hit in a hit and run two nights ago. And my wife looked at me and she said, do you think this is how God feels? Because it's this idea that an injustice was done. God is angry at sin. He does not want the world to be the way it is. So he is holy and righteous and he promises one day he will reverse it so that no longer there will be injustice in this world. God is a holy and righteous judge. But we also see at the cross that God is also loving and merciful who actually was willing to step into this darkness and even take on death by giving us his only son to absorb the justice and the punishment and the wrath in our place. At the cross, we see the truth about the world, that this world is full of darkness and evil, that when God actually took on flesh, our response to God in the flesh was to put him on a cross and crucify him between two thieves. And Paul's prayer, this prayer right here, don't you see it? It's it's a prayer of eternal life and death. Whether a person is made complete and whole, whether a person lives eternally with God forever or eternally separated from God forever, the way a person has either eternal life or death is whether do you know Jesus? Do you know this wisdom? Do you know wisdom in the flesh? Do you know who Jesus is and do you believe in him and place your faith in him? That is the only thing that will make you complete is this knowledge of God's will in Jesus. Knowing Jesus is the greatest need, not only of the Colossians 2000 years ago, but no, it's the greatest need of all of us, every person in this room this morning. Jesus is what we need, knowledge of him. Jesus in fact said to his disciples, the most important question you can ask yourself is who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? That is the most important thing, the one thing that Paul wants to get across to this church. You need to know Jesus. He is the difference between eternal life and fellowship with God or eternal life apart from God. And that's, that gives us a question, right? Because Paul, Paul only isn't interested in knowledge for knowledge's sake, Right? He's interested in a knowledge with a purpose. And we see that in verse nine and 10. Remember, he says that he's heard that they've heard the gospel and believed the gospel in Colossae. 
And then he says, I pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And he gives the purpose here. He says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So Paul prays here, not that they would just have knowledge for knowledge's sake, but a, a knowledge that transforms the way they follow God and the way that they live their life. My wife, um, you know, she, she, she says this isn't fun. I think it's fun. We have this Bible trivia book. And a lot of times on road trips or after breakfast or after dinner, I always tell Hannah, hey, let, let's open the Bible trivia book. And like, you can quiz me, right? Let's see how much I know about Malachi. <laughs> and she's like, no, you're the only type of person that thinks that's fun. That's not fun for me, <laughs> right? I gotta go give, give the kids a bath. You can study that yourself. Paul's not interested in that kind of knowledge, although that knowledge is good. I wanna say studying the Bible memorizing scripture, knowing more about Jesus, studying theology. These things are extremely and vitally important, but what Paul cares about here is a knowledge that transforms, a knowledge with a purpose. C.S. Lewis uh, stated this perfectly. He was a uh, professor and an apologist and a philosopher. An apologist is a person who defends the Christian faith. And he lived during the 20th century. He put it this way, it's a great quote. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by, because by it, I see everything else. See, what, what Lewis was saying there is that Christianity, knowledge of Jesus is not merely true, but it's a truth that informs every area of our life, every dimension of our life. By Jesus, we see everything else. We see all of life because Jesus changes every aspect and component of us. Paige Brown, who's a Bible teacher who lives in Nashville, she had this great story that every time she would, uh, during spring break, take a group of girls and they would go down to Panama City Beach, Florida. And they said that the girls were so excited to see like this muscular bodybuilder who always hung out on the beach. And I don't remember his name, so I'm just gonna call him Paco for the sake of the illustration. They would go to Paco and they would say, Paco, give us give us your trick. Like what, what's your secret? And he would, they would say, you know, we want to trim some underarm stuff. We want to trim our waist. We want to trim our calves. And Paco would look at them and say, girls, I have to teach you one thing. And this thing is that there is no such thing as spot reduction. There is no such thing as spot reduction. There is no such thing as spot following Jesus where we submit one part of our life to Jesus, but live apart from him in another aspect of our life. All of life, a life fully pleasing to Jesus is what Paul talks about here. And let me clarify here. When Paul says to live a life fully pleasing of Jesus, he doesn't mean that you're perfect. What he means is that every element and every component, every aspect of your life from work to changing diapers is all transformed and shaped and done differently in light of Jesus. So the question I have for you is, where are you not following Jesus? What area of your life are you not giving over control to Jesus? Maybe for you, it's time. Maybe, you know, Jesus has not been a priority of your time. Instead of learning about who he is in the Bible, instead of spending time in prayer with him, instead of being together with other believers, and maybe even Sunday morning is a struggle for you to come and make Sunday morning a priority to worship God and to hear teaching and to receive sacraments and to pray. Maybe those things have been slowly, slowly squeezed out of your schedule and, and you want to hold time as this thing that you're not going to submit to Jesus. Or maybe for others of us, it's a relationship. 
that Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers us is not translated in us to forgiving others. So instead of grace and forgiveness and mercy for other people, maybe we've default to judgment, bitterness, grudges. I know for me recently, it's been anger, even though Jesus is patient with me, even though he's gentle with me, I rarely extend that same gentleness and patience to my, my wife and my kids. But what is it for you? Are you walking in ways worthy and fully pleasing to Jesus or are you looking to spot follow Jesus? It's an all or nothing thing. It is not 50%, it's not 75% following Jesus. It's, you know, it's, like, it's a lot like being pregnant, right? If you go up to a woman who's pregnant and you say, hey, are you pregnant? And she says, no, I'm only 50% pregnant today, right? That, that's weird. You can't do that. It's all or nothing. For many of us this morning, my call to you is you, you have to get off the fence, right? You have to get off the fence. The Bible says this. The Bible says that this kind of wisdom, this kind of knowledge of Jesus that transforms us, it is more precious than gold. Your invitation is grab hold of it. Grab hold of that treasure that God is offering you. He's offering it to you in Jesus. Grab hold of it for the very first time maybe. Grab hold of it. And the Bible says when you do that, a beautiful thing happens, right? Paul, Paul even says it in this passage. He says that when you do that, you become like a tree. He uses this imagery of a tree. No longer is the question, what am I missing? What is the missing key to life? What more do I need? The question becomes, how can I now bless others? How can I be of a benefit to others? He says this, Verse 11, or sorry, verse 10. He says, when you know this truth, you begin bearing fruit in every good work and growing, the translation there says increasing, but can also be translated growing, and growing in the knowledge of God. You see what the imagery is there? Just as a person walking through the desert comes across a tree and takes of it and eats from it as it's nourished and sustained and blessed by it, Paul says that same thing happens to you when you're rooted in the knowledge of Jesus and he's transforming your life, you begin to be a blessing to others. You start blessing other people with your resources. You start blessing people in your work. You start blessing the children that you've been entrusted with. So Paul's first prayer here is a knowledge that leads to transformation and blessing. And the second part of Paul's prayer is he says, this is hard and you need strength. He prays for strength. Verse 11. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. My son and I, when we go traveling, just like any three-year-old and 29-year-old, we like to walk on the moving walkways that they have at airports. And then when you're halfway past or halfway down the moving walkway, start running backward and try and get back to where you started, Right? And I'm strong enough, meaning I can actually do it, but, but Eli can't do it. He's not fast enough. So he tries to run and run and run. He's just running in place. He can't make any progress. He needs somebody stronger than him, me, to pick him up and run back with him in order to get to where he wants to go. Paul says that is the imagery for living this kind of life. When you walk in ways that are pleasing to God, it is something that requires supernatural strength because it is impossible to do it in your own strength. 
I remember the story of uh, a young minister who had just taken his first pastorate. So he had taken this first church as a solo pastor. And he was about six months in and he was really frustrated because it was so difficult. So he wrote back to his mentor and he said, this is really hard. I'm trying to preach, but I'm constantly being criticized. This is hard. I'm trying to reach people and reach out to the community, but they seem to want no- have nothing to do with it. It's really hard. And he would say, I'm trying to counsel people, but they just don't be, they don't seem to be receptive of it. It's really hard. And this mentor wrote back to him and said, here's the problem that you're struggling with. As long as you think that something is hard, you will always look to yourself to find the strength to overcome it. But the second that you find out that living a life with God and doing ministry is impossible, then you'll be useful. See, the only way to live this life, to walk in ways pleasing to God, we have to realize it is impossible without a supernatural power, a supernatural grace provided to us by God himself. See, the Bible says that that when we place our faith in Jesus, right? We place our faith in Jesus that we're united to him. It's kind of like this mystical thing. We're united to Jesus, just as a bride is united to her husband and a husband is united to his bride. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are united to him and we share in all the good things that Jesus has for us. We have an assurance of God's love. Because Jesus was the son of God and we are united to him, we are now called children of God. We have this peace of conscience knowing that Jesus' death on the cross was our death that we deserved. And so we have this peace of conscience knowing God doesn't look at me in my sinful state. He doesn't look at me and say sinner as if he has a microscope and he's just teasing out and waiting for us to fail. No, he says, you are forgiven completely as far as the sins uh, or as far as the East is from the West. That's how forgiven you are. And we also have this great joy knowing Jesus, when he died, he gave us eternal life that our lives on this earth will continue on but in a perfect fellowship with God and a perfectly restored earth. We have all the good things, but the Bible also says this. It says in this life, while we're waiting for that eternal life to come, we also share in the suffering. We also share in Christ's suffering because our lives look more like Jesus's. We live the kind of life that he lived, which is a life not for self, but a life for service. Not a life to indulge our sin and and, and to hold on to our sin, but to to die to our sin, to actually put to death the things that we still kind of like, but we know we have this greater thing that we love, which is Jesus. So we constantly seek to put to death that sin. Instead of walking our own path and, and, and blazing our own trail, we walk in God's path. That's what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone would follow me, let him pick up his cross daily and die to themselves and so follow me to live a life of self-denial, service, and sometimes even suffering. In order to live that life, that life that we're united to Jesus in, we need the supernatural power and grace of God to do it. Otherwise, it's impossible. So that's why Paul prays here for the Colossians. He says, Colossians, when you are weak, I pray that you would be strengthened with God's power according to his glorious might. When you are weary and tired, Paul says, I pray for your endurance. When you want to quit, I, pay for your, I pray for your patience. When you're a bitter, when you want to give up, when you think, is this life really worth it? He says he prays for our joy. I know every morning 
Almost every morning I wake up and as I'm going to my lounge chair to read the Bible, I think, is this all true? Like, am I just believing in a fairy tale here? And my inclination is to get bitter. But by the supernatural grace of God, I can live a joy-filled life in light of this truth that I need a supernatural power to live the life that God has called me to. Because this life apart from God's grace is impossible. It's impossible. A famous uh, theologian, his name was Augustine. He lived during the fourth century. He put it perfectly. He put it this way. He said, whatever God requires of his servants, Christ will supply by his supernatural grace. God calls you to live a life of service and self-denial and he gives you the grace needed to actually do it. So let me ask you this morning, are you prone to give up? I don't know what you came in here with this morning. I don't know what you're struggling with, what particular issue or circumstance you're walking through. Are you inclined to give up? Good, good. You are right where God wants you, right on the brink of being an instrument in his hand to do something that's far greater than you can do in your own strength. See, Paul's prayer here isn't, it's not be better, try harder, pull yourself up and gut it out because you know what? Like life is not college basketball, right? That principle of life doesn't transfer in to when I'm struggling in my marriage. God says, no, you need a supernatural, infinite strength and power that's beyond your something, something outside of yourself poured into you by God to walk in ways that are pleasing to God. So that's Paul's prayer. He prays for a knowledge that transforms and blesses and he prays for a supernatural strength for this church. And lastly, last point, this is my last point. He prays that these people, these Colossians would be a people of thanks, a people of true thanksgiving. Verse 12 through 14, he says this, giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of all of our sins. The one thing I remember from science class growing up, I don't remember a whole lot of it, but this is the only thing that I remember is that in the 16th century, we had the Copernican revolution. It was this guy, his name was Copernicus, Nicholas Copernicus. And he was the first person to propose the theory that we don't live in a geocentric solar system. That all of the solar system does not revolve around the earth. Instead, he proposed for the first time that we actually live in a heliocentric universe, that the sun is at the center of the universe and everything revolves around it. At the center for Paul in Paul's life and the way Paul views the world, at the center of Paul's life is God. God is the center. God is the thing that holds everything together. God is the thing around which everything or orbits. And no matter what Paul's circumstance, Paul can give thanks to God. He can give thanks to God in all circumstances. Remember, he is in prison. Ask yourself, how can he have such joy, such praise, such thanksgiving? No matter what his circumstance, the reason is, is because God is the center. Paul is in chains. Paul is cuffed every day between two Roman soldiers. He's lost everything in life. He's lost his friends. He's lost his family. He has no prospect of fame or wealth or fortune or beauty. He has lost everything. And the reason that Paul can give thanks is that circumstances are not the center for Paul. God is. 
God is the center for Paul. God does not revolve around his circumstances. Rather, his circumstances, Paul's circumstances revolve around God. Paul has, you know what Paul's saying here? He's saying that you can, you can view life and you can actually have life viewed from two different angles. The first angle says this. The first angle says you are a disqualified, socially out, out, outcast, rejected person. That's what Paul says. He says you can view life from this angle. You can say that you lost it all. I'm in prison. I'm a nobody. I'm an outsider. I'm marginalized. Or you can live a life from this angle. And this angle says, verse 12, that God has qualified you to share in an inheritance, an inheritance of eternal life beyond the grave forever. No matter what I lose in this life, whether it be my job, my car, whatever it is, I don't care necessarily that I lost this thing because I have a greater view on life, a greater inheritance, a kingdom that God says he will one day give to me. That's the inheritance I want. That's the angle that Paul views life from. Paul also says there's another angle, right? There's, there's the angle where you could view him and you could say, Paul, you're in chains. You're a slave. You're a prisoner. Paul says, no, even though I'm chained here, verse 13, he says, I am no longer ch chained by sin. I am no longer chained by Satan. I'm no longer chained to pornography. I'm no longer chained to slander. I'm no longer chained to telling lies or spreading false things about myself. I'm no longer chained to living for the approval of others. I'm no longer chained in that respect. I am free by God because Jesus on the cross and by his resurrection freed me into this eternal life. You can call me a slave here, a prisoner here, but I have been freed from the chains of sin and I'm a child of God. You can view life from another angle and say, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is King, right? That my happiness and my thanksgiving is determined by who's the president for the next four years or who got elected to the House of Representatives or who's gonna be the next appointee to the Supreme Court. Paul says, no, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my King. And you know what my king does? You want to know what my king does for me? No president, no person in the House of Representatives, no Supreme Court sitting justice has ever done this. No Supreme Court justice would do what Jesus did, who was the king. He came and we're told that in him, we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. That word redemption means we've been bought back. Jesus actually came and he battled at the very front lines of the war that we're living with sin and against Satan. And he spilled his own blood on the battlefield to win people like us back. That's the kind of king we serve. The king who comes down and fights the battle for us and saves us by his grace and his blood shed on that battlefield so that we could be bought back from eternal death. That's the kind of king that Paul has. That's the kind of universe Paul lives in. Let me close with this. I love Seinfeld. Seinfeld, my favorite show growing up. And if you know anything about Seinfeld, Seinfeld is known as the show about nothing. Has no purpose, no plot, no end in sight. Right? <laughs> Paul says, if you believe in Jesus, that is not true about you. You, you are not living the show about nothing right now. You have a glorious future. You have an inheritance in store for you. You have a glorious presence, present. You are a child of God. You have a glorious identity. 
That's the kind of world that you can live in. That's the kind of angle and orbit that all of your circumstances and all of your life circumstances and all of the particulars in your life can orbit around. A meaningful, purposeful life because Jesus earned it for you on the cross. So no matter what you're experiencing, whether you have uh, surgery next week or whether you're just afraid to face your uncle at Thanksgiving, right? No matter what it is, Paul's prayer for you, God's, God's desire for you is reorder your universe. Reorder your universe. Only there will you live a life of true thanksgiving, joy, and gratitude. It's the only way. Otherwise, those things will only be found in your circumstances, which are subject to change. That's God's prayer for you. Reorder your universe where God is at the center and he will begin to shape your life and shape your circumstances for his purposes. You can be truly grateful and thankful and joyful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you tell truth to us, that we don't have to walk in the dark of wondering what you want from us or what we need to know or the kind of life we have to live. You've laid it down clearly here, God, in your word. And Paul prayed it for us, not just for the Colossians, for us. God, please apply this, that this would not just be something we hear today and walk along in the rest of our life. Instead, God, would this change the way we live Monday through Saturday, as well as today. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.